Hi guys, my name's Jason and this is the UK Money Podcast. Now on this podcast, I obviously talk about money, but money is a very broad topic. So I guess I get a little bit more specific on that. I talk about things like investments, stock market, guilt and bonds, cash-based investments, property uh, funds, things like that. I also talk about different forms of tax wrappers, ISAs, pensions, different kind of ways you can hold your money, as well as broader financial planning topics like how to save for retirement, whether you should buy or rent a house, and just various different financial questions that different people pose to me. And on today's episode of the podcast, that is what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be answering a listener question um, that I've had come through. And that question is, what kind of things would you uh, recommend or would you uh, say that people should consider if they are becoming becoming parents for the first time, either um, whether they've just become new parents or whether that's something that they are considering in the future. So that's what I'm going to be talking about today. Now, as I always say, it's a super important thing for me to always mention is that I am a financial planner, so I provide financial advice to clients every single day, but nothing on this podcast should be considered financial advice. You know, it's just a format where I can provide you with some information, um, answer some questions in kind of general terms that will hopefully you'll be able to take some um, some information from that will help you on your own in your own financial circumstances. Now, this question has come through on Twitter and it's come through from Stuart. And he um, he tweeted me on Twitter and said that uh, I've mentioned on the podcast a couple of times that um, I've got a couple of young kids, uh, including a, a, an 11-week-old, so no sleep happening in my house at the moment. But um, he asked me that as a, as a, as a parent, as a new parent, um, what would be some of the things that I would suggest are really important to consider from a financial perspective? And I think that is a really, really important question um, because it's really one of, if not the biggest things that happens in your life. And it is one of the um, one of the things that has the biggest potential impact on your finance. So on today's episode of the podcast, I'm going to be talking through some of the things that I've learned um, in being a parent and, and how that's impacted our finances, as well as um, things that I've seen with clients of mine and things that I recommend and talk to clients about as well. Now, even if you are not a uh, parent yourself or not something that is um, going to be necessarily on the horizon, I think there's going to be a couple of things in here that will be relevant for really everybody. So please do stick around for it. If you have questions, if there's things that you would like to ask me, then please do get in touch. As I, again, I always say it, but my contact information is in the show notes. So you can uh, email me at jason at jasonmountford.com. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter like Stuart has. Um, either drop me a DM on Twitter or just uh, just tweet at me. That's fine. Um, or on Instagram as well. And like I, uh, one of the things I'm also always trying to get going is the voice memo. So if you drop me a voice memo on Instagram, I can then play it um, on play your play your voice on the podcast so you can hear yourself um, coming through your headphones. So if uh, if you have questions, get in touch with me that way, and I'd be more than happy to answer them. Um, I mentioned this last time as well, but one of the things that I am trying to do is increase the um, increase the engagement and or increase the profile, I guess, of my YouTube channel. So I am going to be doing some additional videos on there as well as the podcast. The podcasts all go up on my YouTube channel, which is the UK Money Podcast. Um, But I am also doing some smaller individual videos as well. So uh, the episode last week, I talked about, uh, the week before last actually, talked about the the budget was one of the big things. Um, And I provided an extra uh, video on uh, green guilt and bonds and kind of what I see 
um, that space potentially developing into um, and some of the things that the Chancellor talked about there. So please do head over to YouTube and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Um, but in the meantime, let's get into today's episode and we're going to be talking about finances or financial planning for new parents. So I think it's pretty safe to say that having children is pretty much the biggest financial decision that you can make in your life. You know, there's not many decisions that we make and especially financial decisions that are irreversible. You know, if you get a tattoo, you can always get it lasered off. If you buy a house, you can always sell it. But if you have kids, you're stuck with them for life basically, which is a good thing. Don't get me wrong. We all have our kids. But it does have a really big impact on your family finances. And I think when you're looking at this issue, there's um, a couple of different stages of it, basically. There's the time where maybe you are making a plan in the future to have children. So, you know, if you're in a position where that's something that you know you are likely want to want to try and do over the next couple of years, that's obviously the best case scenario from a financial perspective, because it means you've got time to be able to think through and plan out what your finances are going to look like and um, ways to make sure your financial position is secure as possible. So that's kind of the first stage. The second stage is obviously then um, once the child is born. So there are things you can do early on in your in your child's life that can potentially set them up really well for, for the future um, and also make sure that your own fam- family finances are as, as stable and secure as possible. And then obviously there's the kind of more longer term, um, longer term planning that we can, we'll have a little bit of a talk about as well. But effectively it falls down to kind of before your children are born um, and then that, that time right around where they are born and maybe um, one of you is on, on maternity or paternity leave um, and then kind of that, that longer term process where um, work has got back to whatever is going to be normal um, and your things are, I guess, more stable. So if we start having a look at that that first aspect, so if you are in the situation where you are actively planning for a family in the future, that is a really good time to get very specific around what life is going to look like. And this is a common thread um, from really any form of financial planning. So whether you're planning for um, a career change, whether you're planning for retirement, um, whatever the case is is whatever the situation is, the thing that is going to make that transition or that change to your circumstances as um, smooth and as achievable as possible is by being as realistic as possible about what life is going to look like. So let's say you're having that conversation with your partner, you're talking about um, what you, um, the, the fact that you would like to have a family, um, needing to, that really one of the most important things is needing to understand how that is going to both impact your, your income. And what I mean by that is obviously there's going to have to be some time taken off work when that child comes. And that amount of time is going to be different for everybody. Who takes that time off is going to be different for everybody. Obviously, um, the, the woman will be the one having the actual child. So there'll be at least some period of time where, where she is off work. Um, and longer, But longer term, you know, that could be either member of the couples. I know people who have um, where the, the um, woman in the, in the couple has taken time off to, to look after the children when they're young and vice versa. I've known people where it's been the man that's done that. So the important thing is, is about having that conversation in detail about what that looks like. And what I mean by that is getting as specific as possible in terms of how many hours do you each plan to work over the different phases of that, that, that period? 
Um, when the kind of really early stages are off, uh, uh, are over what are the plans longer term so once the child's in school maybe or once the child is um, old enough to be in, in childcare for for um, a few more hours each week you know what are, in an ideal scenario again remember we're, we're always talking about in what do you want your life to look like in an ideal scenario what does that look like now i recognize there's going to be a element of um unknown with that you know none of us really know exactly how we're going to feel once we have kids um whether we would want to go back to work full time or, or whether, uh, you know, our attitudes towards that will change, you know, so there has to be an element of flexibility in that. But I think it's important to lay out exactly what the best case or ideal case scenario is at the current time. Now, the reason why that's so important is because again, once you know what your ideal lifestyle looks like, you can then work out how that's going to impact your finances. So if you are looking to go from two full-time wages or incomes down to one person one person working five days a week and one person working three days a week. It's really important to work that backwards and say, well, how does that impact our income? And if that's going to impact our income, which it will, if you're dropping your hours, how does that impact our family budget? You know, can we still afford to pay a mortgage? Can we still afford to do the things we we want to do? And the more specific you can get around that, the more accurate you can be, and then the more uh, conscious those decisions can be. So, you know, if you've kind of worked through that process, maybe you realize that actually on um, one part-time wage and one full-time wage, you actually can't afford to have children um, and look after them in, in the way that you want. Um, and that's not then to say, well, all right, kids are off the table for us, so be it. You know, th- it's just then about making conscious decisions about what the trade-offs are going to be or, or what adjustments you can make. So, you know, that is is pretty simple. It's either going to be looking at, well, can I afford to have that much time off work or can I afford to work those hours or are there ways we can look to reduce our costs somewhere to try and make sure we can afford these children? So it's nothing, there's nothing, I want to say difficult, but that's not true. There's nothing complex about it. It's not complex. It's pretty simple math to kind of work out how your you know ideal work patterns look and then work out the finances of that. But it is difficult because you you know partners may have conflicting ideas of what they want from from you know that that period of life or you know what they want that income how, how much of an income impact they're prepared to take things like that. So it's a potentially difficult conversations to have, but having those difficult conversations up front makes it um less likely there's going to be conflict down the line. Now, I'm going to put a massive caveat on this because you can have that ideal plan in place. And I alluded to it a little bit before, but it is very, 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 very important to number one, have a big safety buffer built into that. And number two, be flexible with that plan. And my my situation is a really good example of that. Um, And I'll share a little bit with, with a little bit of that with you in that we um, were both working full time, my wife and I. Um, this was when we were living in Australia, um, both earning pretty good money, and obviously had decided to have have our first child. So the um, pregnancy was all fine; everything went normal. We were expecting, or my my wife was expecting that she would have some time off for maternity leave, and then her plan was to return back to work. Ideally, um, probably not full time. You know, um, but definitely part time. She was um, she was very uh, b- becoming very successful in her career, and her plan was to to go back into that after after our son was born. Now, 
the I may, I'm not sure if I've mentioned this on the podcast or not before, but my son had a lot of health compl- complications at birth. So um, he has cerebral palsy and epilepsy now. So the kind of picture that we had on our head for starting a family has turned out very, very different than what he, we had planned. Now, we, we love our life to bits. We love our little boy. He's an absolute champ. But it, life has, has uh, looked very different than what we had expected. And so my wife wasn't able to go back to work um, like she had planned. She, had, um, she, she has had to take on caring responsibilities for our son. Um, and so that, for a period of time, put us through a very... Um, put us in a very difficult financial spot. So, you know, our lifestyle had been based on what I thought was quite conservative. You know, our mortgage, our um, our regular living costs were based off my wage plus my wife working um, on a part-time basis. So we kind of set things up with that best laid plan in place. Um, But even with that said, what we we thought was being quite conservative, um, the actual end result was quite different. So that put us under quite a bit of financial strain whilst we kind of readjusted things and made changes to our life. Now, you know, long term, we've been able to work through that. But that is, I guess, something that I would say is that just like when you're planning for your finances in terms of investing, you know, when you look to go into an investment, you think of what's kind of the worst case scenario, right? So if you're looking to invest for three years or five years or seven years, you know, you need to go in there with kind of the what you hope for over that period. You know, you hope for a good return that's nice and steady, um, that puts you in a better long-term financial position. But you have to understand that you may be investing the day before the next global financial crisis. And there's not going to ever be any way for you to know whether that's going to be the case or not. So as much as you should plan for what you hope you, your ideal situation should look like, the one thing I would say is make sure that you also have a think about the worst case scenario. So, you know, worst case scenario, if you had to go down to one wage, one income, because one of you was not able to go back to work after that child's born, what does that look like? Does that mean that you literally cannot afford your mortgage? Does that mean that life um, is not going to be sustainable? And have a... Um, have that backup plan to understand that if something happens and if that situation doesn't work out exactly as you had planned, what are the steps you're going to take? You know, is it possible for you to to um, manage your finances and manage your family budget based off one wage? So that would be my, my number one tip um, pre, which you know is probably not a very, it's not a very uplifting tip, but it's just important. You know, and again, it always comes back to the fact that you, the more you plan for these things, the less of an issue they are if and when they happen. The cornerstone of all this really is a good budget. You know, uh, a budget doesn't have to be, again, doesn't have to be complicated. Um, it just has to be um, as accurate as possible. So, you know, there's plenty of um, spreadsheets you can find online or different um, free programs you can find online, but a, a really good household budget is really important, especially when um, kids are going to come along. If you've not done it before, there are things that cost a lot more money that you than you think that they will. So, um, you know, nappies cost an absolute fortune. Um so it's really important to understand where your money's going so that if times do start to get tight, you can see areas where you could potentially tighten your belt a little bit. So budgeting, super important pretty much all the time, but even more important when you're planning on starting a family. Now, in terms of I'll give it that, what I've talked about so far is quite um, 
broad kind of theoretical type stuff um, in terms of the actual planning aspect. And now I want to switch gears a little bit and talk a bit more about some of the specifics in terms of um, planning for your child's financial future. Because I think when people think of or are planning on having children, one of the things they're often really keen to do um, is start putting some money aside for their kids. So, you know, whether that's um, saving for them to help them on the housing ladder in the future, whether that's putting some money aside to help them with potential university costs, um, People have lots of different ideas of, of, of what the money's for, but it is kind of one of the first places that people go. Now, the first thing I want to talk about in regards to that are junior ISIS because they seem like often the kind of the go-to option, right? I mean, it makes sense. That's what they're designed for. They're, they're ISIS that are designed for children. So a lot of people automatically think, if I'm going to start putting some money aside for my kids, I should probably consider a junior ISA. And junior ISAs are um, effectively like just adult ISAs really, except that they're for people under the age of um, 18 or I think it's 16 for cash ISAs. Um, and the limit is a bit lower at £9,000 per year. So you can um, start an ISA in your new new child's name and put up to £9,000 in there, still uh, cash uh, tax-free just like a standard ISA. Um, as I said, you can have cash versions, you can have stocks and shares versions. I've got one big problem with junior ISAs, and that is that when your child turns 18, it's their money. And that's not necessarily a problem. I don't want it to sound like um, a really big negative thing that they're going to get the money that you have saved for them. Obviously, that is the whole point. I guess that the, the caveat that I put on that is that when your child is one year old or two months old, you have no idea what your what your child is going to, who they're going to be, the kind of person they're going to be when they're 18 years old. And again, the plan is for them to be fantastic, lovely, well-rounded individuals who you could trust with giving £30,000 or £10,000 or £5,000. But you don't know that. And I think I think for me, um, it's really important to retain control over the way in which you pass on your assets to your children. You know, and I think uh, for a lot of people, um, when they turn 18, they are very mature, they would make the right decisions and they wouldn't go wasting that money. They would understand that it is for university or it's for a house deposit or whatever. But there are plenty of people out there who, when they turn 18, are not necessarily going to be um, responsible enough or mature enough yet to be handed a big lump sum of money. And the issue with the junior ISA is you have no choice. You have no control over that. The day they turn 18, if they are aware that they have this ISA, they can walk into the bank or, or call up the investment company and withdraw the full amount. Um, so it's not to say that you shouldn't do it. You know, it, it's it's still a, a potentially, uh, it's still an option for people. I guess for me, um, I think it's, it's better to be able to have a conversation with your children at the time and discuss um, and educate them about what are they going to be the best options. It's not about holding that money back until you deem them worthy necessarily. It's more just about having the opportunity to have a discussion with them around it and make those decisions together. And so for me, that is the the key weakness of a junior ISA is that is that there is no there's no um, there's no discretion around it. There's no opportunity to have that. Com- there is opportunity to have the conversation prior, but at, like I say, day they turn 18, it's their money. So 
there are definitely other things you can consider. Uh, you know, if you, depending on how much you're putting into your own ISAs, you know, you could have a, a separate ISA set up that is in your own name, but is kind of denominated or, you know, in, you know, set aside in a lot of ways for your children. Um, you know, there are uh, a plenty of different, plenty of ways you can hold money in your own name that is pretty tax effective that will still allow you to pass that money on to your children, as I said, at a time where you, you think it's going to be the best thing for them. So that's the first, I guess, first part on junior ISAs. The other area that I would like to have a bit of a talk about is um, something that is not very commonly known, but from my perspective, has the potential to have pretty much one of the biggest impacts on your children's finances. And that is the idea of starting pensions for your children. And it might seem a bit weird, but actually there's no minimum age limit on which you can start a pension. So you could have a new child today and then tomorrow you could actually start a pension in their name, a SIP or a personal pension or something. Now, the um, there are limits as to what you can put in your pension. So you may have... Um, you may remember from previous podcasts that the amount you can put in your pension is equal to the amount of earned income that you have in a given tax year. So if you've earned £20,000 from your job, um, you can put up to £20,000 into a pension inclusive of the tax relief, the basic rate tax relief. Now, I would say that most two-week-old children don't have a part-time job down at a local pizza shop, so that they don't have any earned income. However, you can put up to £3,600 into your pension, gross, inclusive of the basic rate tax relief, um, without any earned income. So that is true for everybody. That's true for people who are retired. That is true for people who are um, in their 40s and not working. And it is true for one-week-old babies. So you could start a pension um, for your children, um, regardless of their age, and you could put up to £2,880 of your own money in there, which is then topped up by the tax relief of £720, meaning a total of £3,600 goes into that pension. So it might not sound like a huge, well, it is a huge, it is a lot of money for a, for a baby, um, but the because of the way in which pensions work, because those rules of access are so strict, that money that goes in when your children are very young can't be touched until 50, they're 55 at the moment. That will probably change um, by the time they are at that age, potentially up to um, in line with the age pension age, state pension age. So it could be 65, it could be 67. But effectively, when they are at the point where they are retiring, that pension will be there for them then and they won't be able to get access to it sooner. Now, that's potentially a pretty big downside. You know, any money you're putting into a pension at that age is effectively going to be locked away for 60 plus years, which is a very, very long investment time frame. But that really long investment time frame has the benefit of meaning that you are forced to hold the investment for a very long time. And you know, as I've talked about in previous episodes of the podcast, and as I'm sure you'll already know, you know, the power of compound growth is exponential. So the growth you get on your investments in the initial years is dwarfed as time goes on. That that curve, that growth curve gets steeper and steeper and steeper. So 
you have this situation and I don't actually have the figures to hand. So I'm going to use kind of ballparky figures. So don't hold me to these figures. But if you go into a compound interest calculator online, you'll be able to do them yourself. But effectively, if you look at the, um, if you look at some of the, um, the potential levels of growth you can get over that period of time, it's pretty crazy, as I'm sure you can probably guess. So, you know, let's say you decided to start a pension for your children and maybe you got some help from their from their grandparents, from your parents, and you decide to put in the that maximum pension contribution of three thousand six hundred pounds for the first eight years of their life. You put that money in over the first eight years of their life. They then um, they then you don't put anything more in. It just sits there in a fairly high growth fund because obviously you have got a long investment time frame. It sits there until they're age sixty five. The actual value of those funds is going to be over two million pounds by the time they hit 65. So if you talk about leaving a legacy and setting your children up for the future or your grandchildren even potentially, there's just about nothing more powerful than that. Now, I'm going to caveat that again. That doesn't take into account inflation. So obviously two, two, two and a half million quid in um, in 65 years' time it isn't going to be what uh, two and a half million quid is today. But, you know, even if you adjust it for inflation, that's like three or four hundred thousand pounds in today's money. And that kind of level of investment could mean that they've got an income of around 20 grand that they, they could have for the rest of their life. And if you think about the fact that if you could set your children up with an income that's going to pay them 20 grand a year in retirement, they get a little bit of state pension if it's still around. If they've got a partner, the partner's got a bit of money as well. They've got money that they probably will have accumulated themselves from workplace pensions because there's auto-enrollment now. You know, you could put them in a, a situation where they could they could almost choose to do any job or any career that they want. You know, they're not going to have to be going into something thinking, I need to earn enough money to live my life now, but also save for the future, which is what we all do. We all think about this trade-off between doing what we want to do, doing what we love, um, and making sure that it's financially viable for us to do that so that we can save for our own retirement. So you could put your children at a financial position where they have a huge amount of freedom as to what they do with their life because retirement is at least going to be partially taken care of. And so for me, that is one of the key things that I like to get across to people is that, you know, Starting those pensions early can be an absolute game changer in terms of leaving a legacy for your children or for your grandchildren. Now, like I say, it comes with those downsides. You know, we um, you're going to be locking the money away for a very long time, regardless. And also, there's, a, there's a, a, an element of a legislative risk as well. You know, we, as I, I did mention it before, but that that age is probably going to increase. It's 55 at the moment. Talked about increasing it to 57. I wouldn't be surprised if over time it started to move in step with the state pension age. So there is that risk with it, but I think it, it's fair to say that there's going to be a limit as to how high that that um, that age is increased. Because at the end of the day, you know, pensions are there to be accessed. So you know, the government um, isn't going to, I don't believe personally, going to get into a situation where pensions become effectively useless because the age that you can access it is too high. I don't, I don't think that that's ever going to happen. But that is something to be aware of, that there's obviously not 100% certainty as to when your grandchildren or your children are going to be able to access that money. But if you go into it with your eyes open, I think for me, that is one of the really um, most underutilized and most exciting things you could do for new children. 
So in terms of a, a summary, um, for me, you know, starting a family is going to have a big impact on your finances. It's important to understand that's the case. It comes down to having a really solid budget, planning, hoping for that, well, not hoping, planning for your ideal situation, but also um, planning for a worst case scenario and how that might impact you financially. And again, budget is central to that. You know, you can have even two budgets. You can have option A, you know, ideal scenario, option B, worst case scenario, or option C, D, whatever. How many options or scenarios that you want to have? But it's really important that that is robust and it's something that is realistic. So that's number one for me in the, in the kind of lead up stages prior to, um, to trying for children or having your first child. We also talked about junior ISAs. So, you know, again, they can be a, a, a really good tool. They're a tax-free wrapper for children. That's fantastic. But I think for me, really important to remember that your kids get access to that money the day they turn 18, regardless of whether they are an absolute saint or a complete rat bag. And I think that is a really important point to keep in mind. And then lastly, we've talked about pensions, you know, uh, very overlooked, um, but potentially massive implications, massive positive implications if it's something that you uh, are considering for your kids. So I hope that's been beneficial. Um, if, Like I say, if you have any questions, uh, if there's anything, any feedback you'd like to give me on today's episode of the podcast, if there's questions that you have, please do get in touch with me via Twitter, via Instagram, via email. Go over to the YouTube channel and subscribe to that. Um, also still doing the clubhouse, clubhouse rooms on Fridays, Friday lunchtimes, uh, 12.30. Let me just double check it, I believe. That's when I have it on. Yes. 12, no, 12 o'clock, 12 o'clock every Friday. Um, not getting a huge amount of um, um, huge numbers through to that room. So I'd like to try and improve that and increase that if we can get that conversation going, follow up from these podcast episodes, talk about the questions that you might have. Um, if you need a clubhouse invite, drop me an email um, and I'm more than happy to send one over to you. It'd be great to see you um, in that room with us. But in the meantime, I really appreciate listening to the podcast, guys, and I look forward to speaking to you next time. Hi, guys. I just wanted to jump in really quickly to let you know about my free weekly newsletter, also called The Hedge. Every week, I comb through all the social feeds and news websites to cut through the noise and bring you the latest news and ideas in investing, business, entrepreneurship, and personal development. As with all content from The Hedge, the aim is to help you grow your wealth in a way that allows you to be your real, authentic self. If you'd like to sign up, you can find the link, as well as the links to all our other content, at thehedge.io.